Me and my fiance are planning a wedding right now, and it's a really exciting season. It's a really cool season. It's also not really what I expected, which is funny because everyone told me exactly what to expect. Everyone told me, hey, it's going to be more time-consuming than you think. It's going to be more expensive than you think. And apparently, I didn't get the message. We were looking at different vendors and things. And I remember turning to Shannon. I was like, man, this is like more money than I thought it was going to be. And she just, the eye roll, was like, I have been telling you this for years. <laughs> and so if you told me so, you can give yourself a little pat on the back. It's okay. And man, like I used to think I wanted like a short engagement. I used to look at people who did a longer one. I was like, man, that looks so difficult. And now I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that we're doing a longer engagement. Like we are busy. We, it is time consuming. And the reality is I just had like wrong expectations. I just had like the wrong idea about what this season of my life was going to be like. And I think similarly as Christians, we often get the wrong idea about what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to live the Christian life, if I could use that term. We get bad expectations. We often have the wrong idea about the Christian life. And I kind of mean this practical day in, day out working of what does it look like to follow Jesus. And this thinking has crept into our culture. Where we are in history, in our context, is this thinking has crept in that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to go to church once a week, to make friends with Christian people, maybe invite people to church, just maybe, and maybe if you're like a really good, like you're Paul or Peter, you white-knuckle your way to becoming a more moral human being. You just kind of grit your teeth and become more and more of a better human being before you die and go to heaven. And that's really often what we think, that's functionally what we believe about being Christians. And maybe you're sitting here right now and you're like, you know, I know up here that there must be more to this Christian life than that. But functionally, the way my life is just playing out right now is like, yeah, that's, that's what it looks like. That's what it is for me. And what I don't want to happen right now is for shame to come in. Because so often what will happen is we come to this realization that, man, there must be more. There must be closeness with God. There must be something deeper in this life. But instead of taking healthy steps towards God, ultimately what we end up doing is piling onto ourselves. So we say, man, there must be something wrong with me. I must be incapable of that relationship. I must be incapable of being loved. And so we think God is mad at me. God is disappointed in me. He's waiting for me to get my act together before he can use me or love me or call me to something. And if that's you today, I just, I need you to hear right now that, that there is freedom from this vicious cycle that we end up in. See, we end up in this cycle where we see that we are not where we want to be. So the solution is to try harder, perform more, try on our own merit to be better. And there's nothing in there about closeness with God. There's nothing in there about fellowship with God, knowing God. And so there is freedom from this cycle. There is a life in Jesus that has satisfaction and peace and joy. And it's only made possible when we shift our gaze away from our performance and what we can do and what we can bring to the table and towards the one who has done it on our behalf. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today and you're joining us in the room or online, I'm really glad that you're here. And maybe you are coming at this whole Jesus-following Christianity thing from one of two places. So maybe you just think that Christianity is just like every other world religion. It is just about following some set of moral codes. It's just about having your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds so that you can get to heaven. 
But it's just like every other religion. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you want to have closeness with God. You think that God can be known, but you think that you can't know God. You think that you're too far gone, that you're too sinful, that you're too bad and unworthy to know God. And I want you to see that both of these mentalities are rooted in our ability or lack of ability to perform, our ability or lack of ability to get our way to God. And I want you to hear today that it is not about your performance. It's not about what you can bring to the table. It is about what Jesus has done on your behalf. And so that's where we're going today. So we're going to be spending our time in the book of Hebrews. And I love the book of Hebrews, mainly because I'm an Old Testament nerd. Uh, And one of the things that the book of Hebrews does really well is it makes connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the author will quote the Old Testament. He'll make allusions to the Old Testament. And the whole point of the book is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the truer and better Savior and Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. He does this really cool thing where he doesn't just quote or cite Old Testament stuff, but he'll actually show how Old Testament people and events and concepts are previews or foretastes for Jesus and what he would do. And so I want you to think with me about walking into a house and just smelling the aroma of good cooking. Doug has talked about how we used to meet at Pastor Pavone's house before we had that amazing property. And there would be days when I would walk in and Kathy would just be cooking up something awesome. Like you could just smell it through the whole house. And every once in a while she'd let me taste it and I'd be like, yo, Kathy, this is banging. (laughs) Man, I remember, like, you would know it's Sunday at my house when you'd smell the fresh sauce being cooked. Or Saturday morning, my dad would make breakfast. I'm getting you all hungry. Christmas cookies in the winter, apple pie in the fall. Like, come on, you know what this is like. And an aroma, what it does is provide information to you about that thing before you ever see it, before you ever touch it, before you ever hold it, before you ever taste it. And in the same way, there are people and themes and events in the Old Testament that provide that aroma of Jesus, that show us a preview of who Jesus was and what he would do before he ever even burst onto the scene. And there are a lot of different ways and examples of this. For anyone who's curious, this is called typology. That's for free if you're a theology nerd like me. Um, But I want to focus today on this concept of Jesus as our high priest. Jesus as our high priest. And here's the thing. We got to understand the role of the high priest before we can talk about Jesus as our high priest. And here's the thing. A lot of us carry baggage into the room today when we talk about the word priest. Like, I don't know what uh, context you've come out of, whether you were religious before or, or not very religious at all. But when we think of the word priest and we think of legalism or a super religious word or this grumpy old guy who wants to hit you over the head with the Bible, we're missing the point of this concept. See, the priest is an intermediary, an intercessor between God and the people. He would go on behalf of the people and offer sacrifices and offerings for, to make atonement for the sin of the people. So when you think of high priest, I want you to think of the go-between. The high priest is a go-between from man to God. And so with that, let's start in Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have such 
a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And so he begins to flesh out this idea of Jesus as our high priest. And the argument that he's making is not that Jesus is one of the high priests. So like there's a long line of high priests in Israel. It's not that Jesus is one of the high priests. It's that he is the truer, better high priest. He is the high priest who came to end that line. And so he's going to draw parallels and make comparisons and make contrasts between him and Aaron. And Aaron was Israel's first high priest. And so the first thing that he says is we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. And, and that's just a really confusing way of saying that Jesus is from heaven. Jesus is the high priest who came from God's presence. He carries the presence of God with him. And it's this really powerful image because the earthly high priests could not handle being in God's presence. See, there was this thing that the earthly high priest had to do. Once a year, they would enter a room called the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sin of the people. And the Holy of Holies was a small room at the center of the temple where the presence of God dwelt. And they would go in there for a short amount of time, and it would be so intense that if they didn't go in there under the right circumstances, like, they might drop dead. Like, this isn't even a joke. They would tie a rope around the priest, and there would be other priests waiting just in case they dropped dead because no one was going in there after them. And so these human high priests couldn't be in God's presence. They couldn't handle that. These imperfect men could not handle that. But Jesus, our high priest, is in perfect standing with the Father. He has come from the presence of God. He carries the presence of God with him. And that makes him the perfect go-between because he's in perfect standing with the Father. And at first, this might make him sound really distant, really inaccessible, really far above us and unable to relate, but I want you to look back at what the author says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So in Jesus, we get this perfect balance where he is perfect and in perfect standing with the Father, yet at the same time, he can sympathize with us because he walked this earth as a man. He knows what it's like to feel pain, to feel the emotions of life, to feel the temptations of life, yet he's without sin. And so we're already seeing how in Jesus we have this perfect balanced go-between who carries the presence of God with him, yet can sympathize with us. And he calls us to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Man, that is a concept that would be so wild to a religious person back then. Man, the people did not approach God. The high priest could barely approach God. But in Jesus, we are invited, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but we are invited to have access and approach the throne of grace when we can receive mercy in times of need. That is a powerful thing, church. So I want to continue into chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifice for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. 
Because of this, he must take an offering for his own sins as well as the people. No one takes his honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. Also, it says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he continues this thought line. He talks about how the high priest makes sacrifices on behalf of the people. And he's able to deal gently with the people he represents. And it's kind of furthering this idea that Jesus can have sympathy for us in our weaknesses. But it's actually an even more powerful concept. Because the high priest in his calling was, he was not to lose patience with the people he represented. He could deal gently with them. And when we talk about Jesus as our high priest, I need you to hear today, Jesus does not lose patience with you. See, again, some of us are caught up in this mindset that God's patience for you is running thin, that he's disappointed in you, that he's at best tolerating you until you get your act together. And I need you to hear today that that is a lie. He does not lose patience with you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. He loves you and has a calling for you now. And this lie is designed to keep us in a cycle of performance. It's designed to keep you stuck where you are. When you think that, oh, Jesus is going to lose patience with me. God is disappointed in me. It's just a lie designed to keep you stuck where you are. But when we remember that Jesus, our perfect high priest, is able to sympathize with us, he never loses patience with us. Man, we can take comfort in that. And he talks about this idea of Jesus being appointed by God, and he makes reference to Jesus being the son of God. And what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 2, and it's drawing to mind this image of Jesus' submission. See, the father-son imagery, we often miss out on that as 21st century believers because a father-son relationship in our mind is very different from a father-son relationship in their mind. Father and son in our mind, we think of uh, catches in the backyard and fishing trips together. But a father and son relationship back in the ancient Near East would be characterized by authority and submission. That a good father is a righteous and just authority over his family. And a good son is willingly and lovingly submitting himself to the father. And so in Jesus, we have this thing where even though he is on equal footing with God the father and God the spirit, he willingly submits himself to the will of the father. And in doing so, he provides a picture for us as believers on how we can submit to God. And the author is going to continue this line of thought. But I just want to take a second. If you're not a follower of Jesus today and you're wondering what makes Christianity so different from like another world religion, man, this is something I think that is so powerful. That we have a God who, who said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. A God who said, I'm going to willingly submit myself to the Father and show you how you can submit yourselves to God. No other God does that. No other God would do that. And so let's keep moving as the author continues this line of thinking in verse 7. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. 
And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so there's a lot going on here. And the first thing that the author is drawing to mind is the Garden of Gethsemane. This event where Jesus, before the crucifixion, was crying out to his heavenly father. A really honest and kind of brutal prayer. God, would you spare me from what's about to happen? He said, would you pass this cup from me? And I don't think I'm spoiling it for you when I say that he doesn't. Like, Jesus goes to the cross. You're like, I was just at that chapter. Come on, man. <laughs> and what's so amazing in Jesus' real honest prayer is that he says, would you pass this cup from me? But then he follows it up by saying, not my will, but your will be done. And I just want to speak today to the person who feels really discouraged in their prayer life. Maybe you have been praying for something for such a long time and you are starting to wonder if anyone is even listening. You are starting to wonder, does God even hear my prayers? And if that's you today, I need you to hear that all throughout scripture we are given the promise that God is listening to our prayers. I love in Jeremiah 29 when he says to the people of Israel, you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And this is spoken to a sinful and rebellious generation, and he still promises to hear their prayers, how much more church will he hear ours? We are encouraged in this passage to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? Because we can have confidence that God will hear our prayers. If you're feeling discouraged today that God's not listening, I encourage you, man, God is listening to your prayers. Or maybe you're not discouraged for that reason, but you were praying for something, real honest, real raw prayers, and you just didn't get the answer that you wanted. And my heart absolutely breaks for the loss that we have seen and experienced over this last year. Like families and friends crying out to God for the life of their loved ones. And I really wish I had more answers for you about why some people have a miracle and some people don't. But I think what we are given is a really powerful picture by Jesus about what it looks like to submit our will to God's will in those moments. To say, God, you know, you know I want my loved one's life to be spared. Or God, you know that we have been praying for so long. We, we were asking for you to bless us with children in our family. But at the end of it all, God, not my will, but your will be done. And I'm not saying this like it's some easy thing for you to go and do. I'm not saying it like it's some easy thing for you to do. It might be the hardest prayer you ever have to pray. But I think God is calling us to that. And I think it becomes this really um, uncomfortable thought that we have because we often hear in our culture, one thing that the American church seems to be yelling really loud right now is that uh, God wants to give you the desires of your heart. God wants to give you the desires of your heart. If you want it, God's going to give it to you. And this, this thought comes from Psalm 37, a verse that says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. And what we love to do is focus on the heart's desires part and kind of ignore what it means to take delight in the Lord. And what this means, it's all about aligning your will and your heart with God's. It's not about God just giving you whatever you want. It's about submitting yourself to God, and you will begin to desire the things that God desires. See, when you submit your will to God's will, you will desire what God desires. 
So man, if you are discouraged today, I want to encourage you. God is listening and he cares about your prayers. And I'm not saying that by submitting your will and, and, and submitting your heart to him, you're just not going to get what it is you've been praying for. Man, I hope and pray that you do. But he's calling you to something deeper today. He's calling you to submit your heart and your will to him. And then at the end of this passage, the author kind of brings up this weird and random guy named Melchizedek. And you might have seen this and just kind of glossed over it. Uh, it sounds kind of weird. It sounds kind of random. But I think it's actually really, really powerful, really important. So who is Melchizedek? Well, first of all, it's a great baby name. I don't know if you're expecting, but just think about it for a second. Melchizedek, Ezekiel, it rolls off the tongue. He'll stick out in his class. It would be great. But if you don't recognize the name, that's okay. He pops up once in Genesis 14. He's mentioned like two more times. And he is this kind of random figure that bursts onto the scene. He's the king of a city called Salem and a high priest of the Most High God. And he helps out Abraham and he blesses him and he disappears. And that's kind of it. And um, we learn through the scripture that he was a follower of Yahweh. He was a follower of God. See, this is happening before any form of organized Judaism. And so there are just pockets of people who are following God because they heard about God through stories or encountered God on their own. And so Melchizedek is a follower of God and he is a priest of God. But he's also king of a city called Salem. And I'm not talking about Salem, Massachusetts. It's not like Salem witch trials, like WandaVision. I'm not, like, no, he's a, the king of a city called Salem. Actually, Salem is going to later become Jerusalem. And so Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem and a priest of the Most High God. Now, that differs greatly from the priesthood under Aaron. See, under Aaron, everything was divided. You had the prophets, the king, and the priests, and, and no one intersected. No one crossed boundaries. The priests did their thing in the temple. The king did his thing with politics, and they did not cross over. Even we see an example of Uzziah, the king of Israel, who in kind of his ag uh, arrogance tries to fulfill the role of a priest and is punished for it. So under Aaron... There was no priest-king. It was the priests and the kings. But under this order of Melchizedek, Jesus is called our high priest and our king. And you might be wondering, well, okay, well, why is this important? Like, okay, Jesus is priest and king, that's cool. Why is that important? Well, we have a high priest who is the perfect go-between on our behalf, who has made atonement for our sin through the great sacrifice of his life on the cross, yet at the same time, he is a king who, all, uh, who, who welcomes us into his presence, who offers us a right relationship with God. Man, only through this high priest and king could we have that. And our bottom line today is that through Jesus, our high priest and king, we can be in right relationship with God. See, it is only because of Jesus as our high priest who made atonement on our behalf and our king who welcomes us into a relationship with him can we have that. And this is such an important part of the gospel. See, again, I think we get caught up in these very American ideas that have kind of infiltrated the church, that the gospel and Jesus' death on the cross did nothing more than punch your ticket to heaven, and then you just kind of live your life and try your best until you die and go to heaven with him one day. And don't mishear me. Jesus' death has purchased for you eternal life with him. But there is so much more. 
that we miss out on. See, our God came to earth and walked with us as a man, experienced human life, human pain, temptation, suffering, and died on a cross to reconcile all things back to himself. Things like creation, things like broken people are reconciled to Jesus in his death. That he stood where we deserve to be standing for our sin, in our place. And in his resurrection, he finishes the work of life. As Jesus is raised to life, he is breathing life into things that were dead. And he fulfills the role of the high priest by making atonement for us. There's no more holy of holies. There's no more only can the high priest enter the presence of God. No, no. We have been given access to God's presence through Jesus' work on the cross. And as our king, he invites us to have a right relationship with God. He invites us to have access to God. That's powerful. So I want to talk about what this looks like for us as we move forward, as we talk about shifting our gaze away from our performance and towards what God has done for us. How does that play out in our lives? Well, I want to talk about knowing God and being known by God. So, so first, knowing God. What does it look like to know God, to take time to pursue his presence? I loved in part one of Doug's series, what I learned from almost dying, he talked about breathing in God's presence. And it was a really awesome way to reframe the way that we think about quiet time and spending time with God, pursuing God's presence and breathing that in, letting it kind of bring life into your soul. And so we pursue God's presence through prayer, through knowing the word, not just checking off a to-do list, of reading, but knowing God's word, letting it take root in your life, having relationships that spur you on towards holiness, having relationships that point you towards God and being that for other people. And it's not just about knowing trivia or, or being able to flex on other Christians because you know more. No, no, no. You want to know God's heart. You want to align yourself with God's heart. God's heart is found in Scripture. So you want to know God's heart, you got to know scripture. You want to have your affections stirred up for Jesus by gazing into the depths of who he is. Man, theology is going to get you there real quick. Not because you want to puff yourself up, but because you want to have your affections stirred up. And then there is this idea that I think a lot of us just kind of don't know what it means to be known by God. And you're like, obviously he knows me, he made me. How can I be known by God any deeper than that? And I just want you to think um, there is a difference between knowing about someone and knowing them intimately. Man, I know a lot, like a, uh, like a stupid amount about John Mayer. Like, I know so much. I don't know, just know, like, oh, I know what kind of guitar he plays. You know, like, I could tell you what guitars, what pedals, what amps he was playing on certain tours between certain dates. Like, this is creepy amounts. Like, if he heard it, he'd be creeped out. But I don't know him. I don't know him. Sorry. <laughs> I wish I knew him. No. <laughs> I don't know him. And in the same way, we can open ourselves up to God. Lay it all on the table. Let God in. Part of this is allowing scripture to take effect in your life. See, we talk a lot about, are you reading scripture? But man, are you letting scripture read you? What do I mean by that? 
Are you reading scripture in a way that it points out to you what needs to change in your life? That it's speaking to you, not by like, oh, what do I think this means? But, but it's telling you, man, this is what needs to change in your life. Or are we just glossing over the parts of scripture that make us a little uncomfortable or that we find tension in? Are you letting scripture read you? Are you holding something back from God? See, I think this is what holds us back from this knowing and being known by God. Is A lot of us in the room tonight, today, love Jesus. We have an affection for him. We have a desire to know him deeper. But there is some part of our life that we just won't surrender over to him. There's a sin struggle that we just can't let go of. There is a desire that's not even a bad desire, but to the thought of surrendering it is the thought of like giving up a part of your identity. And I think for a lot of us today, it's shame. There is shame that has taken root. It's become a part of your identity. And the thought, the lie has come into your life that you could never give that up. It's, it's a part of who you are that you could never surrender over that to God. And then you could never have closeness to God because of your shame. Think about what you've done. And it's this vicious lie. And if that's you today, I just want you to hear that there is no shame, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You don't have to carry that guilt with you anymore. You can lay it at his feet. He died for that. You can lay that down at the foot of the cross. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're coming at this from a very similar point. You hear me say there's no shame, there's no condemnation, and you're like, Joe, that sounds great for them, but not for me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing. And if that's you, I just need you to hear today that there is a Savior who loves you, who died to reconcile all things back to himself, to make you who's broken whole again, to breathe life into something that was dead. And if you want to put your trust in Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. But let's remember that through Jesus, our high priest and king, we can be in right relationship with God. We can know God and be known by God. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for being our high priest and go-between. That you've interceded for us on our behalf. You've made a sacrifice on our behalf on the cross, the, the ultimate sacrifice that never needs to be done again. There never needs to be another high priest who will enter a holy space to do it. You have made the final sacrifice on our behalf. You have stood in our place of punishment, took the death that we deserved. And God, as our king, you've welcomed us into a kingdom. You have invited us to have fellowship and closeness with you. Help us to seek fellowship and closeness with you this week, God, as we go forward from this place. If you want to place your trust in Jesus today, you can pray this with me right now. Jesus, I believe that you died in my place and that in your death you paid the penalty for my sin. I believe that you rose again and in your resurrection you have brought life to things that were once dead. And you've given me access to God. You've given me closeness to God. I want that life that you offer. I want that freedom from shame that you offer. Would you come into my life today? 
And if you prayed that, I just want you to know it's, those weren't magic words. Those weren't some words that punch your ticket, but it's the heart that God is looking at. And so if you prayed that prayer or something like that prayer, I just encourage you to reach out to someone today. Whether you're here in the room with us and you just want to pull me aside or pull Doug aside, we would be more than happy to talk to you about it. Or if you're watching and joining us online, man, just fill out that connection card and hit that you've made a decision to follow Jesus today. And we would love to connect with you and let you know what comes next. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would continue.